How many of you have heard of the Athanasian Creed? You've heard of the Apostles' Creed. You may have heard of the Nicene Creed. Yeah, you used to cite that in church. <laughs> and some of you may have heard of the Athanasian Creed. Well, that was a creed that it's thought to have originated in southern France in the 5th century. So it's fairly early. You know, the 4th century Council of Nicaea, then the 5th century. But all these creeds began to develop. They grew out of, began with the Arian controversy, which was a controversy regarding the nature of Christ, how Christ relates to God, God the Father. And Arius, of course, believed that apparently, we, you know, we have mostly of what his enemies say about him, so there may be some misinformation about what Arius actually believed. He was an Alexandrian uh, presbyter who lived in the 4th century. And apparently he believed that Christ was a created being in his pre-incarnate state, uh, that he was created out of nothing, which means he's not ontolog ontologically equal with the Father, which that was a problem. Onto ontology, ontological. That's, that's We're talking about uh, the nature of being. Uh, like You and I are ontological equals because we're equally human. Uh, us and dogs are not ontologically equal. So you understand that. So uh, to say that Christ, the pre-incarnate, the pre-existent Christ was not ontologically equal with the Father, that was a problem. <clears throat> so these... Councils began to, to take place, and, and from them, creeds began to be formed. The Athanasian Creed, I'd like to read just a little portion of it. It says, whoever will be saved, so you better listen close now, whoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. Now, that means the universal faith, the faith that was agreed to by all the bishops that came together in these conferences. Which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. So you've got to believe this or you are going to, you know, where. He goes on to say, and the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. If you don't agree with that, then you know where, you know what's going to happen. <laughs> Later on in the creed, I won't read the whole thing, but just portions of it. It says, so then after, after it defines the meaning of the Trinity, one God, three persons, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet not three gods, but one God. The Father is eternal, the Son is so, yet not three eternals, one, one eternal. After all of that, it says, so that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved must thus, thus think of the Trinity. So how many of you, according to this, you think are saved? I'm <laughs> not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. <clears throat> well, let me define a little bit. Let me tell you what Trinity means. It's the idea <clears throat> that uh, the one God, and Scripture does say that God is one, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's reaffirmed in the New Testament. So the one God is said to be one being within whom there are three personal distinctions. The three hypostases or persons 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now you have all kinds of models today. Among those who call themselves Trinitarian, there are different models of the Trinity. There are some who believe in the psychological Trinity. That dates back to Augustine. And there are others who are considered social Trinitarians. Now, what are the differences? They're all Trinitarian, but the social Trinity and the psychological Trinity differ in this respect. Those who hold the psychological model of the Trinity emphasize the unity of the nature of God. It goes back to Augustine. Augustine defined God as a nature. So what is God? It's a nature. It's the eternal nature. Okay, what about the... Per yeah, well, there are three persons within the eternal nature, but God is defined as the eternal nature. But in the East, the, the Cappadocian Fathers, <clears throat> they define God in terms... They emphasize the persons. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So out of that, over time, and all the way down to our time today, in the Protestant world, you have... Uh, these different models of the Trinity. Some, like uh, for example, Karl Barth, a famous uh, theologian who was part of, <coughs> excuse me, I'm getting a little, still have this uh, congestion there from weeks gone by. He had a real problem with the word person. He didn't like to call the persons of the Trinity persons. He, he, he felt that people who use that term, because in our language, person means individual being. For example, you're a person, I'm a person, and all of us are persons. We're individual beings. We're separate in many regards. We're here together in, in harmony and spirit, but we're separate. We're separate individuals. And so that's the meaning of person today. And when you talk about persons of the Godhead, then you're, it's almost getting close to tritheism. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that means three gods, three separate gods. <clears throat> so, Karl Barth and many others holding the psychological view of the Trinity prefer not to use the word persons. Now, there are those who hold the social view, and they define the Trinity as three persons. And they're so distinct, emphasizing the person so much, that the psychological Trinitarians accuse them of getting awfully, awfully close to tritheism. And whereas the social Trinitarians say, yeah, but you're so blurring the distinction between the persons that you're getting close to modalism. Modalism is a belief that God is one person who has three modes of existence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this, this, this is the controversy that goes on within Trinitarianism. Now, you also have, and I think this is important for our purposes today, you have the idea, the concept of the imminent or ontological trinity, as well as the, uh, the concept of the economic trinity. It's important when you're reading Trinitarian literature, when you're studying through and trying to sort through all of these things, that you understand the difference between these things. Uh, in the immanent or ontological trinity, that is, that, that is a, a, an understanding of God as He is in His very nature. In other words, God in nature is one being in whom there are three personal distinctions, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Economic trinity is how we see God. It's, a, a, it's defined as from being from here below. We're here looking up. We're here looking at Scripture. And it addresses the question of how God relates to us. 
or how we relate to God. And, of course, you do relate to God, and you understand God, you perceive God in three ways, don't you? You see, you understand God as Father, you relate to God as Son, and you relate to God as Holy Spirit. You see, that's a from here below view. And in that sense, guess what? If you're, if you're in agreement with me, if we all hold to the same view, then we're all economic Trinitarians. We hold the economic trinity. But see, you can hold the economic trinity without holding the imminent or ontological trinity. Does that, is that, I hope that's clear. <laughs> some, of, some of these terms sometimes can get, you can get all bogged down. But the point is here that uh, the, the Athanasian Creed and other creeds, they're really dealing with the ontological trinity not the economic trinity, and they're saying if you don't believe in the ontological trinity, then you cannot be saved. I'd like to begin today in John 1, a very familiar passage. We've explored it in the past. I'll bring out perhaps some things that we haven't noticed before about John 1, but I think uh, most of us here, all of us I would hope, would, would agree that Jesus Christ did have a pre-human existence. In John chapter 1, we read about that. John 1, in verse, beginning in verse 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, the term here is Logos, and the Logos, or Word, was with Tantheon, the God, literally, and the Word was God, without the definite article. He was in the beginning with God, all, with, he was in the beginning with Tantheon, with the God, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So what does this tell us right here? That the Logos, whatever this Logos is, is not part of the creation. It's other than the creation. Because all things that are made are made through him. So he cannot be something that's made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now keep in mind here that he's still talking about the same subject. The subject is the Logos. He says the Logos was, was with the God, Tantheon. That's, that's, a, that's a, a clumsy language for us, isn't it? Because we don't go around speaking about the God. Well, what do you think about the, the, the God's blessing today? Uh, has the God been good to us? You know, the, we don't talk about the God. So let's, let's use a different word that will help us to make a little more sense of it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the Deity, and the Deity would be God the Father, and the Word was Deity. That makes a little more sense, doesn't it? In other words, the Word is ontologically the same as the Father. But obviously, since He's with the Father, He's not identical with the Father. You have a distinction there. Ontological sameness, but distinction uh, in some sense. <clears throat> So he goes on in, uh, in verse 6, says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness to the light. The light, remember, is the Logos. It's still the same, same subject here. That all through him might believe. He was not the light. John was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Same subject, the Logos, all here described as the light. That was the true light, which gives light to everyone, every man coming into the world. He was in the world. Now, some of my Socinian friends deny the preexistence of Christ. They're still friends. We just disagree on this. 
And they say, well, Logos, really, that's just talking about the word that goes forth out of God's mouth. It's not talking about a personal being or anything like that. It's just the word that goes forth and creates. You know, the problem they get into is the part that says the Logos was Theos. The Logos was God. And here's the second issue that comes up and a problem for them if they depersonalize the word. And that's this statement right here. It says in verse, uh, uh, verse 10, He was in the world, still talking about the Logos, also the light, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own <clears throat> did not receive him. So, you can't, speak, you can't speak this way of an impersonal force, can you? He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. In other words, it's talking about when the Logos came in the flesh, came to his own, his own creation. <clears throat> and then he's saying the same thing as he continues. He says it in a different way. He says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the, this is two ways of saying essentially the same thing. He came to his own, his own did not receive him. Again, you cannot have an impersonal word coming to his own. And then it says the word was made flesh. Remember, we've already defined word. John has already defined the word for us. Was with the God or with the, 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 uh, the deity and was himself deity. So, the de so deity, God, took on flesh. It's as simple as that. That's the, that's the natural way to read this text. Uh, the Unitarians have to do quite a number on it and uh, say, well, that expression, the Word was God, really means the Word was uh, intrinsic in the nature of God, you know, something like that. But that's not what it means. It obviously means that the Word came, that came to His own was actually a conscious, personal uh, entity and existed in his pre-human existence was with the Father. Now there's something else very interesting in this text. And that's in verse 18. It says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Now, in the Greek this says, Monogenes Huos, only begotten Son. But this is, there's a variant in the translation, <clears throat> a variant in the manuscripts. And many scholars believe that this is not the original. But the original is in the variant, which reads, Monogonos Theos, only begotten God. And that would agree with what we see back in the first few verses. So what are we saying here? Only begotten doesn't mean that he was, he was created at some point in time. It's talking about relationship. Relationship. And let me explain that to you by using a, a, a material example. Now remember, any time we're comparing material things, uh, physical things, with the spirit realm, with God, uh, the analogy will break down at some point. So don't press the analogy too far. But in, uh, in the Genesis narrative, we read about the creation of Adam, the first man. <clears throat> what was his name? Adam? Adam? What does that mean? Human or humankind. <clears throat> so God gave the name of the first human, human. <laughs> he called him what he was. <clears throat> or humanity, excuse me. 
Now, where did Eve come from? Yeah, came right out of the human, didn't she? Were they ontologically different? Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh? No. So you could say this. In the garden was the woman, and the woman was with the human, and the woman was human. You see the analogy? That's what we're talking about here. God the Father, the deity, was with, or the, the, the word, the Logos, was with the Father in eternity and was distinct from Him. Ontologically equal, but functionally distinct and personally distinct. So thus far, I could agree with uh, the Athanasian Creed on that point. That you have these two persons, God the Father and Christ the Son. Or the one who would become Christ. <clears throat> well, let's go on over to chapter 3. Chapter 3, in verse 13. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He says, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven... This is consistent with what we see in John 1. He who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's referring to his crucifixion. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And here's the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. <clears throat> now, we could get into all kinds of speculation about uh, the pre-human existence of the Word and His relationship with the Father. And I've heard a lot of it over the years. I remember, for example, someone speculating, and this is pure speculation, and I'll say before I, I tell you what it is that I don't agree with it, but uh, speculating that there was held a heavenly council so that these two divine beings could decide which one is going to go down and become human. I don't believe that ever happened. You know why I don't believe it ever happened? Because I believe, fully believe, and I believe this really, if you read between the lines here, it confirms it, that the, the relationship that existed between God the Father and Jesus Christ, the human Jesus Christ, was a reflection of the, the relationship going back to eternity, before the world was. It's a reflection of that same relationship that always had been. Now tell me, if you have a son, an only son, and you know that you're... That, that, uh, and you're going to have to give him up. Take the example of Abraham. You think it would have been easier for Abraham to slit his own throat? Would have been. Then to offer Isaac, this is the son of his love, the object of his love. And so God is love. And when you have the father sending his son, he couldn't send anything that he loves more than his son. So I say, therefore, the sonship existed before the human sonship. It existed in eternity. You had the same relationship there. And so this, this to me, that concept to me, uh, it, it amplifies, it gives a deeper understanding to what it means that God is love. And how he loved the world so much that he sent and was willing to offer his own son, who was the object of his love, whom he loved more than anything else that he possibly could love. 
So I think that's what we're reading here. Now, several other scriptures uh, that should be brought to light. Let's, let's look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I'm just going to look at a few of the uh, introductory statements of the Apostle Paul in some of his epistles. In Romans chapter 1. After he introduces himself, he says down in verse 7, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We read right over that, but we may not realize that here Paul, what he's doing, if you think about it, he's placing Jesus Christ side by side with God the Father as the source of grace and peace. You don't do that to a mere creature, do you? Some people have said, some people have asked the question, how is it in a strictly monotheistic society, uh, talking about first century Judaism, how is it that these early Jewish converts could have ever possibly began to worship Jesus? And I say one, one way, one, one way of understanding, or one, one uh, explanation, or important factor is the monotheism of that day. I do believe the monotheism of that day was was more flexible than people realize. Because if you look back through the Old Testament even, you see all kinds of agents, human and angelic agents, that are given uh, the name of God because they acted on His behalf. So what about His Son? What do you think His Son would have? His own Son, begotten in eternity, or, or who came out of eternity to become flesh. What about Him? I don't think they had any problem accepting that. So here you see God and Jesus placed side by side in this way as the source of grace and truth. So he's more than a mere creature, obviously. You see, you see this again and again. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And on it goes. You look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 2 and 3. And then uh, we'll all, just go through the epistles and read the introductory statements. And you'll see that he says this over and over and over again. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> As Larry Hurtado has said, he, Larry Hurtado is a, a famous, another famous theologian. Uh, who's written much about uh, the worship of Jesus, uh, the adoration of Jesus in early Judaism and how that could be possible. And he says, you see here again and again, a what he describes as a Benetarian pattern of early Christian devotion. Meaning, you see, God the Father and Jesus Christ placed side by side in the devotion, the worship of these people. Let's uh, skip over several scriptures here. We could go to, go right on to Re Revelation 21. Revelation 21. <clears throat> and see what the description is. It's describing the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and new earth period. And it's talking about the, the uh, well, what the world will be like then. In uh, chapter 21, and let's look at uh, verse 22. But I saw no temple. <coughs> Again, he's talking about the new Jerusalem. He said, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. There you see it again, don't you? Now what is the temple? The temple, historically, anciently, was the place where God dwelt. 
here in the New Jerusalem, there is no temple because God's dwelling is with men. And yes, guess who he places side by side with God? The Lamb. They both are the temple. What does that suggest? The one is worshipped and the other is not? No, no. No, not at all. And you also see it in, in chapter 22. I won't read any more of that. I think you get the point, don't you? I think you get the point. You have the father and son side by side. And devotion in early Christian times was given to both. You see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And here really you have a definition of deity in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's look at that. First Corinthians chapter 8. And Paul is talking about the, the problem with idols. And of course in that world, idolatry was a real problem. Uh, he says, we'll just start there in verse 1, read down to the main text. It says, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we have all knowledge. Or we, we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this is one who is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. What he's driving at here is <clears throat> an idol. Yeah, there's been some of the meat that's sold in the marketplace out there may have been offered at the idol's temple. And for those who can go out and purchase that meat, just like you go to the grocery store and purchase meat, what if it had been offered in an idol's temple? Well, you don't have to worry about that. It doesn't matter, does it? Because it's meat. God provided the meat. Now, if you can't do that without consciousness of the idol, and if you can't do that without thinking you're participating in idolatry, then don't do it. And if your brother stumbles because of what you're doing, don't do it. This is his point here. But he says an idol is nothing. There's only one God. Now then he defines that for us. He says, in verse 4, Therefore concerning the eating of things to of idols, we, well, verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, now stop right there and think about this, what does he mean? What is he talking about? Things that are worshipped, right? Many lords, many gods, theos and curios, the words that are used, many gods, many lords, things that are worshipped. In that context, notice what he says. Yet for us, verse 6, there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him. It's okay, it says the one God is the Father. What about Jesus? It says, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. You see, he's using these same terms, Theos and Kyrios, which are terms used for divinities, for deities in the pagan world. And he says, for us there is one Theos and one Kyrios. So he's using terms for, of divinity to describe the Father and the Son. <coughs> so this is, if you want to know how Paul perceived of God, in other words, if you talk about God as that which is worshipped, that to which we owe our existence. 
He thought of God in terms of the Father and the Son, the one God and the one Lord. And those titles, God and Lord, are both, in this context, used as titles of divinity. So some of my Unitarian friends would say, well, you see right there, it says there's only one God, and he's identified as the Father. That means the Son is not God. So, now, wait a minute. In addition to the fact that both of these terms are titles for divinity in this context, are, are we to say that the one God is not also curious, Lord? Can't say that, can you? It says the one Lord is Jesus Christ. Does that mean the one Lord is not the Father? No. So if the Father is also Lord, what is Christ? He's also God. So in all these passages, God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son are presented side by side as the source of grace and truth and as God and Lord who, are, who, we, are to, who are we are to worship. They're to receive worship from us. Uh, some people have argued that uh, they worship God the Father but not the Son. No, they receive worship. Both receive worship. Jesus says, if you honor me, you honor the Father. You can't honor one without the other. So both are to be to receive worship. Now, you may, may have noticed in all of these texts, we have this emphasis on the Father and the Son. In all the salutations in Paul's epistles, grace and peace, uh, the Father and the Son are the source of grace and peace. No mention of the Holy Spirit. In this text here, in 1 Corinthians 8, for us there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. No mention of the Holy Spirit. So what about the Holy Spirit? And how is it that people come to the idea that the Holy Spirit is the third person of a triune Godhead? And again, we're talking about the ontological trinity here, not the economic trinity. We would all agree that we relate to God and know God by means of the Holy Spirit, just as we know Him and relate to Him as Father and Son. But that's, again, that's the economic trinity, not the ontological trinity. So what about the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> I'd like to, first of all, ask about that about the Old Testament. But rather than go back and read a whole slew of scriptures, which we could do, and show how again and again and again the Spirit of Yahweh is simply the power of Yahweh active in people's lives, I'm going to read a summation from a scholar. From James Dunn, this is his book entitled Christology in the Making, and he says this, he summarizes it for us very well uh, he, when he's talking about in this chapter on uh, the Spirit of God in pre-Christian Judaism. He says, there can be little doubt that from the earliest stages of pre-Christian Judaism, spirit, that's the word is ruah, denoted power, the awful, mysterious force of the wind. The word is ruah. Anytime you read about the wind or the breath in the Old Testament, the word is ruah. So the word is ruah. Of the breath of life, ruah of life. Of ecstatic inspiration induced by divine ruah. And he goes on to say, in particular, spirit of God denotes effective divine power as most clearly seen in the last of the three meanings just outlined. In other words, on this understanding, Spirit of God is in no sense distinct from God, but is simply the power of God. Now get this, God himself acting powerfully in nature and upon men. 
That's a simple definition. Go back and read everything the Old Testament says about the spirit of Yahweh, and that's exactly the definition you will find. He says a little bit later, When, however, the talk is of the Spirit of God, the understanding is not merely of a power from God, but of the power of God, of God himself putting forth efficacious energy. So I think the important thing here is that the idea that the, the Spirit of the Lord is just some kind of force that God uses as if he was a super-duper master Jedi, <laughs> that, that, that's wrong. That's wrong. You know, it, that, that somebody might want to use that analogy and think it's a pretty good one, but at the end of the day, it's not. I think God is just, just, just a super, super master Jedi, and he can really, really very well use the force. No, 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 no. You see, God is the force in the analogy. So God is the force. And that's what Dunn is saying here. He's saying that everywhere in the Old Testament, what you see is the, the Spirit is the power of God. That means God himself acting powerfully in nature. So you cannot say the Spirit is other than God, can you? You shouldn't say that. Nor can you say the Spirit is impersonal. Because if it is God acting in your life, then that God is personal. So you cannot say the Spirit is an impersonal it, an impersonal force that God uses. No, it's God himself acting. Sometimes powerfully, sometimes quietly, the still quiet voice. Uh, the Spirit of God that rested upon Samson, for example, gave to him his great strength. The Spirit of God rested upon uh, the prophets and gave them inspiration, gave them uh, the, the visions they had and so on. And here, of course, when it comes to the New Testament, we see the Spirit of God is more widely distributed. But that's, uh, that is, in essence, is what the Old Testament, as Dunn says here, that's the, old, the way the Old Testament presents the Spirit. I'd like to quote just one, one passage from the Old Spirit to kind of summarize it. This is what the Spirit is. And that passage is uh, in Psalm 139. Psalm 139, and beginning in verse 7. Where can I go from your Ruah, your spirit? So he's asking the question, if I wanted to hide from you, where would I go? Where would I go from your spirit? Now, there's a, another way of saying the same thing is the very next statement. Listen to it. Or where can I flee from your presence? You see what that is? You see the, you see the, the parallel between spirit and presence? What is, what is the spirit of God? It's the presence of God. You can't flee His presence. He's always there. He goes on to say, If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, or Hades, or the pit, behold, you're there. You can't escape His presence. That means His Spirit is there. Now, He may, he may dwell in heaven, but He is there by spiritual extension. His spirit, that's what it means. The presence of Yahweh is there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand, that's another metaphor for spirit, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So you can't go anywhere to escape God because his spirit permeates everything. You can't escape his 
presence. His presence. That's what you mean by spirit. And that's the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Let's begin in Matthew chapter 3. We see a place here where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are mentioned in one text. No question about it. In Matthew chapter 3. This is at the baptism of Jesus. Verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. And Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Now one could say, you know, a dove is a being, and he saw the Spirit descending like a dove, and say he was a dove, but like a dove, and alighted upon him. <clears throat> And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. There you have the Son. Where's the, who's the, who's give, whose voice is it? Obviously the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So there you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. However, that doesn't say anything about the ontological nature of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, does it? No, no. You have this experience here. You have the description of the Spirit described as a dove, in somehow in appearance, I suppose. But, uh, you know, that's, that's something that's a little bit out of, kind of, you wonder about that since uh, the Father and the Son, those are family terms, a father and his son. Somehow a dove doesn't fit that very well, does it? So, in any case, you do have a reference to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the question should be, how did Jesus and how did the disciples perceive the Spirit? What did that mean to them? Did they continue holding the same view they had before as Jews and drawing from the Old Testament revelation concerning the Spirit of God being the presence and power of Yahweh in the lives of people? Well, let's look at it and uh, let's look at some couple, a couple other scriptures. Look at... Uh, Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to compare this with something in Luke, in Matthew chapter 12, and you see it in verse, uh, well let's take up the account there in verse 22, then one was brought to him who was demon possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Of course that means, is this the Messiah? They understood that. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So Satan, the name Beelzebub would obviously apply to Satan. Satan is a personal being, isn't he? Yeah. And then Jesus says, by contrast, verse 27, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out, therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now one could argue, and I think people have argued, that if Beelzebub or Satan is a personal being, 
then surely the, the Spirit of God here is a personal being. In other words, a, a different person than the Father who sends it. Well, let's look at the parallel in Luke, Luke chapter 11, and see how it is worded there. Luke chapter 11, I'll just read the key verse here, verse 20. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Same account, only here he doesn't say spirit of God, he says finger of God. Is a finger of a person a distinct person from the person whose finger it is? No. Is this, does this remind you of something else where the finger of God is mentioned? Such as in Exodus 20? Such as something that was written on tables of stone with what? The finger of God. So we're not talking about ontologically distinct persons here, are we? We're talking about God extending himself into the natural realm and acting in the lives of people. That's what happened when the demon was cast out. God was moving in the natural realm. And this simply uses the expression finger of God. And we see it's synonymous with spirit of God. So there's no reason to think that the writers of the New Testament or Jesus himself thought in terms different from what we find in the Old Testament. Now I read to you what Dunn says <clears throat> about the Old Testament. I could read many other sources, Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant all saying the same thing. They all say... All theologians, I'm not talking about, not talking about the fundamentalists, you'll find something else there. I'm talking about scholars and theologians, they'll all agree that in the Old Testament, the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord was simply the power of God at work in the natural realm. God himself at work in, the, in this world. You find it in the New Catholic Encyclopedia, Spirit of God is simply the power of God, that's what it says. You find it in many other places, <clears throat> and so this is commonly acknowledged. But here you see, in this example, and there are many other examples we could go to, that the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of God, called the Holy Spirit elsewhere, is simply the same thing, the same thing. We should not say that the Spirit is an impersonal it, like a force that God uses, but is God himself putting forth efficacious energy in the world acting in the lives of human beings. And you know, when we, when we baptize repentant believers, we do this, this, is, this symbolizes the death and burial of the old sinful self and the resurrection of the new, who now stands before God, cleansed from all his unrighteousness, and when we lay hands on this person, we ask God to give him his spirit. What does that mean? We're asking God to be present in his life and putting forth efficacious energy to help him change his life. That's what we're asking for. And that's what we trust that God does with such individuals. <clears throat> Turn with me over to Romans chapter 8. We see something else very interesting as this unfolds in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8. Here Paul talks about the Spirit. You might call this the Holy Spirit chapter. He talks quite a bit about the Spirit. He says, in the, in verse 4, in the, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, you follow the lead of the Spirit. 
The Spirit inspires, but the Spirit has given you the Word of God, and you follow the Spirit by following what the Spirit has revealed. This goes on to say, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Then, uh, then he goes on, let's drop on down to uh, verse 8. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Now get this, notice, notice the terms he uses here to, de to define and describe the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, did you get that? Yeah. Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ... You mean that two spirits? No, no, no. No, that's not what he's saying here. He does not have, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, know what the spirit is? Christ in you. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Elsewhere, Paul says there is one church, one body, I mean one body, there's one body, one faith, one baptism. One spirit. One spirit. Not two spirits. Not three. One spirit. And here he calls that spirit the spirit of God. He calls it the spirit of Christ. He calls it Christ in you. So what is the spirit in the New Testament? It is God acting in your life. It is God slash Christ acting in your life or in this world. Putting forth efficacious energy or power. So is the Spirit impersonal? Oh, no. No. But is the Spirit a third person? You see, that's where we, I would disagree with the Trinity. That's where I would disagree with the ontological Trinity. <clears throat> the Spirit is God the Father and Christ the Son spiritually at work in our lives and in this world. Bringing about changes as it pleases them. Now then, let's go to uh, one other passage here. And I want to read something else of what James Dunn has to say about it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, here you have a very good way of defining the Spirit, of, of coming to a better understanding of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is talking about <coughs> the ministry of death. He's comparing that to, that is the time of Moses. The ministry of death. Why would he call that the ministry of death? Because in the time of Mo when God gave Moses the law, the law does what? Save us? No, no. Give us life? No, no, no. It tells us what we are, doesn't it? The law tells us we're sinners, that we are deserving of death, and we are in need of a Savior. So therefore, it's the ministry of death. The Old Covenant is the ministry of death. He contrasts that with the ministry of the Spirit, which gives life. How so? By blotting out the record brought on by the ministry of death. By giving you the spirit of life. By infusing life within you, eternal life. With that in the background, let's read this. He's talking about, he, he describes what happened in the time of Moses. How Moses, when he came out of the mountain, his face shone. And he had to put a veil over it. And he uses that to symbolize the, the blindness that the people of Israel still had to that very day. He says in uh, verse 14, But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. 
But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. What is the Spirit? The Lord. So is the Spirit uh, an impersonal force? No, this says the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. you get that? The Lord equals the Spirit equals the Spirit of the Lord. Talking about the same thing. Not an impersonal force, but God himself acting in the world. I'd like to read what James Dunn has to say about this passage. <clears throat> he says, the, the point of us in the identification Paul thus makes between Yahweh and the Spirit and, and, he, and by this he means he's referring back to the Old Testament where you know Mo, Moses goes into the mountain to meet Yahweh. Yahweh gives the law and uh, Moses comes back and has to wear the veil because of the shining face. But anyway he says the point for, for us in the identification Paul thus makes between Yahweh and the Spirit where it would appear that Lord equals Spirit equals Spirit of the Lord for Paul and Spirit, for Paul, the Spirit experienced by the first Christians is to be identified with that presence of Yahweh, which Moses experienced, quote, whenever he went in before the Lord to speak with him, end quote, in Exodus 34, verse 34. So when Moses went in to speak with the Lord, Paul is saying, that's the Spirit of the Lord. <clears throat> the Lord equals the Spirit of the Lord. He says, the Spirit is the presence of Yahweh. Here then, Paul clearly stands within the mainstream of Jewish thought about the Spirit. For Paul, as much as for earlier Jewish writers, the Spirit is the dynamic power of God himself reaching out to and having its effect on men. That's a beautiful definition right there. Perfect definition. So that's exactly what the New Testament writers had in mind. And the concept of an ontological trinity developed over a long period of time. Now, again, you look at the New Testament, you see the, the building blocks for Trinitarian dogma. It's all there. It does talk about the Father. It does talk about the Son. And it does talk about the Holy Spirit. So you can understand how over time, as these debates occurred among theologians and churchmen uh, in the ancient world, how that this concept, this ontological Trinitarian dogma as expressed in the Athanasian Creed and other creeds developed. But I do think that they, they miss something here. Now I would be a little bit more charitable than some of them when they say that if you don't believe it exactly as they say it, you cannot be saved. I would say if you are Trinitarian, that wouldn't prevent God from saving you. Now, couple of quick Trinitarian proof texts. Uh, I'm going to mention just to save time here, John 14 through 16, when it talks about the other comforter, the other helper that Christ says he will send. If you read those texts carefully, what you will see is he says, and if I go away, he says, I will come to you. And he says, my father and I will make our abode with you. That's what the, the other helper is. But he describes it as if it's another person. 
And you compare that with Proverbs 8 where wisdom, which is God's own wisdom, which is communicated to men, to, to people, is presented as if it were another person who are side by side with God participating in the creation. And so you have the same thing in John 14 through 16. I want to close, though, with uh, two texts, one brief and one, well, both of them brief. Just briefly comment on them. Matthew 28, this is the famous Trinitarian passage. Matthew 28, where we do see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit mentioned side by side. And this is, some would say, this is the most powerful Trinitarian text in the New Testament. <clears throat> Jesus says, verse 19, he tells his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There it is. Some people would read that and say, how can you not believe? Say, the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit. That's three persons. And since the Bible tells us one God, there must be three persons within the one God. Well, some prob there are some problems with that. As most Trinitarian theologians, I'm not talking about the fundamentalists, not talking about those who are married to a particular tradition, talking about open-minded theologians and Bible scholars who are able to look at the text and analyze it without all the, uh, the baggage that comes with uh, some tradition. They'll tell you, so this really says nothing about ontological, ontological uh, uh, unity. It doesn't say anything about it. It just mentions Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, I'll give you one explanation here. I think it's kind of simple. It says, again, we've defined the Holy Spirit as what? We see it throughout the Bible. The Holy Spirit is the power of God at work in this world, in the lives of human beings. So look at it. Look, there's something about power mentioned in this text. Let's look at it. It says, verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, get this, All power! or all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's a bunch of power. <laughs> in all of it has been given to me. In other words, I'm, I've, the Father has handed his sovereignty to me. I'm his agent in his sovereign will in this earth. All power, all authority has been given to me. And he says, go therefore... In other words, because I have all power, you, my disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, that's the source of all power, the Son, the recipient of all power, and the Holy Spirit, which is the power expressed in this world from the Father through the Son. There's another possibility here that we should consider. And that is that this text is not in the original. It's not even there. Uh, it's, it's a strong possibility of that. There are many scholars who believe it does not belong there. And it's based, at least in part, on a quotation from Eusebius in the 4th century. Eusebius was the famous church historian. He quoted this text this way. He alluded to it at least, and whether a direct quotation or not, I'm not sure. But he alluded to it that Jesus sent his disciples to, he says, to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in my name. 
As simple as that. Now, when I baptize, I use this, but with the understanding that I just gave to you. The Father is the source of all, all power. The Son is the recipient of all power. And the Holy Spirit is the way all power is distributed within the earth through the Father and the Son. Okay? But anyway, there is, a, there is a chance, there is a possibility that this text doesn't even, was not even in the original. So that's not really, you can't really use that to prove anything, can you? Now I'd like to close one more passage in Acts chapter 2, Acts the second chapter. This is the day on which the Holy Spirit came. Jesus told them to tarry at Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came and came on the day of Pentecost as a rushing mighty wind. Same word, ruah, wind. And it filled the house. And you know what happened on that day? Peter preached a powerful sermon. You see a changed man here. He's different from the one who uh, said, I don't know him and ran away. Denied him three times. And then heard the, the rooster crow. A uh, different man here, standing up before the crowd, preaching. Something's happened to him. He's had an encounter with, an experience with the Spirit of God as it rested upon him, just as it rested upon the prophets in the Old Testament. And then he said, when he preaches, many of those people who had apparently participated in the crucifixion of Christ, or at least in his arrest, and they knew what happened at least, and they said... When they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, that day some 3,000 repented. And that day some 3,000 received the gift of the Holy Spirit. In the days that followed, <clears throat> many thousands of more received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Joel's prophecy was coming to pass. In those days, no longer, he says, will the Spirit be available only to people specially chosen for particular tasks. But it's going to be given to young and old, to men and women, to bond and slave, to bond and free. It's going to be universally accessible or distributed. And you see this happening right here. And you know it's still happening today. Still happening today. All one has to do upon hearing and believing is to turn to God in repentance and be baptized. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit.